Welcome to Igniting Your Faith. At Igniting Your Faith, we strive to motivate listeners toward a full life in Jesus Christ by sharing the love and life-changing force of God's Word. We encourage you to thoughtfully and prayerfully let God's love make an impact in your life. Now here is Dr. Chris Fisher with today's message of powerful truth from God's Word. Now I heard a joke about Palm Sunday, a little five-year-old boy got a sore throat and he had to stay home with his mom on Palm Sunday. And then his family came back and they were all holding palms and he was just now realizing what these kind of things, uh, seeing them as symbols, and he said, what, what's that all about, Dad? And his dad said, well, the people raised these and worship Jesus as, they, as he, he rode into town. And... Uh, the boy said, dang, wouldn't you know it, the day he shows up, I had to say, so, stay homesick. <laughs> well, uh, praise the Lord, he is here. The Lord lives in the praises of his people, and Jesus promised, I will be with you to the end of the age. I will not leave you, and I will not forsake you. So, though we don't see him usually with our physical eyes, he is with us. And the Spirit. So open your eyes to see him this morning. Uh, today we're going to look at some Palm Sunday things. And I just want to start with um, the real focus is going to end up on loving your family in Christ. And that really works two ways if you look at that. You could, I, you could be saying with that, um, love your family in Christ. So go home, and if you came as a family or part of a family today, go home today and love your family in Christ. And, and that would be a good, valid way of thinking. The other is, love your family in Christ. And who's your family in Christ? It's us, right? It's the church. It's the body of Christ. It's your fellow brothers and sisters, your believers in Jesus. And really, Today, this message works both ways, and God wants us to both do both things. So hang in there as we get there. Now, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5, Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So part of our faith is loving our relatives, caring for them, doing right by them, and um, taking our responsibility for them, whatever it may be. And, you know, sometimes your family is the place where it's hardest to love because it's where your sinfulness comes out uh, because it's only with them that you get closest and you reveal all your heart. And so if what's in your heart is not all that good, then loving your family can be really a challenge. And is there any of us who's got a pure heart that's really just pure good? If that's you, I want to meet you after the service. And so family becomes a place where the act of love is sometimes the hardest, but also the place where it's most needed and most blessed, and where with God's help, the love and grace of God can grow the most. And I, I told that story last week about a, a little girl who was abandoned by her mother when she was little. You know that God intends for us to see his love and receive it through our parents and our siblings as the first gate of grace. Uh, but sometimes it ends up being a source of disgrace, the opposite. 
so that what we experience in our family becomes a place of hurt and harm, and we store those things up in our hearts, and then they start to be what governs our life as we go forward. And praise God, in faith, that stuff can be healed. We can be rerooted and grounded in love, and the bitter seeds planted in childhood can be rooted out and replaced with grace and forgiveness and new life. So keep that in mind. You know, it's no different in the church. You know that if the church only comes to church on Sunday morning and you never see each other during the week, then there is really no need for conflict or any of the things that come with being close to a family. But people have observed, particularly on missions teams, that when mission teams are close together and working for any length of time, conflict starts to happen. Because the same thing that happens in a family happens in the mission team. They start to experience family dynamics. The dynamics of brothers and sisters brought in close to each other whose hearts are not yet perfect. And so conflict happens. And it doesn't happen when we're not close to each other. Just as it doesn't happen in a family if you're, if you're not really a family, if you're too spread out to even have conflict. But when brothers and sisters get together, conflict's inevitable. And so it is in the body of Christ. And it's one of the reasons Jesus gave a lot of attention to his disciples on how to maintain harmony with each other because they were a tight mission team. And he intended them to be a tight mission team forever. And he intended each of their followers that followed him through them to become part of that tight mission team so that we were learning to love each other as he loved us. In fact, because he commanded us to do it. So part of what we need to learn as believers is to go beyond Sunday morning life together, get into places where you're doing the life of God as family. It's one of the reasons we want everybody in the church to be part of a small group. Because that's where family of Christ dynamics start to happen. Not just the stuff where your uh, sand, uh, your rough edges are rubbing each other, but where love grows. And you get somebody who listens to you and who knows your story and has seen the pain of your life and helped you walk further out of it because you're in a small group of people that love each other. That's what Jesus wants for every single member of the church. It's one of the bad things about... Um, this whole last year of pandemic, and you know, we've just passed the year anniversary a couple years ago, is that in so many places it, it got people to stop being together. And Zoom worked for somewhat, you know, Zoom, WebEx, those things have brought us uh, better connection than we could have ever had in such a situation before. But still, you can't hug somebody on Zoom, right? And though you might open up a piece of your heart on Zoom, it, it, to, to the idea of opening up and weeping about something in your life, laugh with those who laugh, weep with those who weep, uh, a little tricky on Zoom, right? And yet each of us has things to weep about, and each of us needs to weep on the shoulder of a brother or sister, a mother or father, an aunt or uncle, uh, 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 in the faith so that we can get past those hurts of our past and let them go and find the peace and grace of Jesus to move forward. So come back. Or if you're here already, get involved in a small group. Now, I'm really pleased to say we have a lot of small groups that are going on, and we have something like 20 of them. And they've still been functioning this last year. 
Um, we're not really sure 100% how many are in them and how many are involved, but at least 100 people. And those folks are continuing to be connected and going beyond Sunday morning worship to worship as family, brothers and sisters. And that is the will of our Lord. Now, turn with me to think about Palm Sunday for a minute. You know, today we celebrate Jesus, our King, who came into Jerusalem very intentionally riding on a donkey as Passover was about to begin in fulfillment of ancient messianic prophecy from Zechariah 9. And the people who waved those palm branches and laid their cloaks on the road before him understood he was the promised Messiah, coming into King David's royal city, riding on a donkey, just as David would have done. They also understood this little symbol was a sign of victory. I want you to get your heads around that for a second. These palm branches were a sign of victory in the ancient world. So for them to see him coming into town on a donkey, recognizing him as Messiah, waving these, thinking, here's the king, victory's on the, on the cusp. We're just about to get rid of these Romans. That's the kind of king they thought the Messiah had to be, a military king. But notice he came on a donkey, not a horse. Horses are used for war. And donkeys are what kings rode when they wanted to come in peace. And that's what he was doing. There's something really ironic about Palm Sunday, because we celebrate Jesus as the true messianic king, and he is, but within a week from the actual day of his riding into Jerusalem, he was rejected by the chief priests and, and elders and handed over to the Romans to be executed. And the same people who waved these victory branches on the day we honor and remember today were probably there in the crowd, some of them shouting, crucify him thinking, well, maybe we got it wrong. He didn't throw out the Romans. Here they are, and our leaders are telling us he's not who we thought he was, and we're going to put our faith in that. And so they agreed to his execution. That's why it's, it's kind of ironic when you think that what we celebrate today, just a week later, it's upside down. You see, Jesus knew all this was about to happen as he rode into Jerusalem, he pressed on to his goal to die in Jerusalem for the sins of the world. Uh, I have to say, you know, we went away to visit Mercy at school last weekend, uh, but we tuned in Sunday morning to watch the worship service, and it was such a joy to listen to Claudia Zelezny of Chosen People Ministries describe her, in her, her presentation of Christ in the Passover and the different ways the ancient Jewish Passover meal symbolizes its fulfillment in the Messiah, in Jesus. We're going to be celebrating that very thing this Thursday night in Holy Week. And I, I want to invite you to come out and celebrate this special Holy Communion service at 7 o'clock on Thursday. And immediately following, we're going to watch that movie, The Passion of the Christ, which is it's brutal, it's graphic. You have to, if you haven't seen it yet, you have to know ahead of time that it's a very... Um, uh, what, what they can do in Hollywood, realistic portrayal of what Jesus went through because of his love for us, Sue, in your prayer today. Thank you for highlighting that, our Lord's love for us, that he would let himself be so brutally tortured and killed in our place. We're going to celebrate that. We're going to watch that movie together and remember, and, and then we're going to have a 14-hour prayer vigil. I invite you to come and just be in the Lord's presence and seek him and um, ask for him to touch you.
and a move in our midst and a move in revival beyond us. Jesus' love for us. Let's think about it for a little bit. Did you ever have one of those choke-up moments when you realized God loves you? Or when you got a, a, a glimpse into the heart of Jesus and saw, oh my gosh, this guy is incredible. Uh, maybe some of you have seen the TV show The Chosen. Anybody seen that? Uh, when we watched the very first episode where he shows his love to Mary after you see Mary Magdalene's story, and it's so clear that she's so brokenhearted, and the people in her life have treated her so badly, and she doesn't even know her name anymore. And then at the end of the show, he, he restores her name and her being to her. It just kind of chokes me up right now just remembering it, that you saw tangibly in that dramatic portrayal what the love of Jesus is really like, that he restores us to who we're meant to be, and that's the kind of king he is. He's not somebody who comes in to trample and destroy, but to heal and build up and renew. Jesus laid down his life because he loved us. The sacrificial lamb of God. John 15, 12 to 13, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And greater love has that no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You know, the Lord said those words knowing he was about to lay down his life for us. Now, I want to remind you of Christ's love for you again. We all sin. It's not just that others have sinned against you. You too have sinned. Whenever we do something that's less than love, less than right, less than pure and good, motivated by anything besides love, that is sin. You and I have all been guilty of sin. And sin separates us from God. God is holy, and no sin can abide in his presence just as no darkness can abide in the presence of blazing light. That's our situation. And the consequences of sin is separation from God. Isaiah 64 says it like this, Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us. Now, this is the prophet speaking on behalf, not just of Israel, but of all humanity. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, describes the result of this separation, this sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Death. Just think of the ways that evil in the world that comes out of the human heart multiplies into death. Death of relationships, death of covenants, death of love, death of families, death of, death of churches, death of cultures, and finally death of people. And not just this death, the physical death, that's not the one we're supposed to be afraid of. The eternal separation from God that comes because we are unholy and he is holy. Eternal death, the lake of fire. But God 
in his great love for us, was not pleased to let us go away to death and hell and be separated from him forever. And he sent his own son into the world to die in our place. The spotless and pure lamb of God so that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish. But have what? Everlasting life. That's right. Life to the full. Now I want to comment for a minute on his spotlessness. There's some false teaching going around by certain so-called Christian teachers who do not know our Lord, who say that Jesus was also a sinner, that he showed prejudice and unrighteous anger, and his judgments indicate he was fallible and limited. Don't believe those false teachers or their teaching. Jesus never sinned. When he was angry, such as when he made a whip and drove the sellers and money changers from the temple, or when he saw the hardness of heart of the religious who objected to his healing people on the Sabbath, his anger was righteous. Don't kid yourself that it was anything else. When he judged, such as when he called the Pharisees and teachers of the law a brood of vipers, his judgment was just and true. Metaphorically, that is what they were, with hearts full of greed and envy, hatred and self-righteousness. They were a brood of vipers. Jesus never sinned in anything he said or did, for there was no sin in his being, no root of evil, nothing of the devil within him from which sin might spring. Isaiah described him accurately in Isaiah 53. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. If those false teachers truly knew our Lord, they would not accuse him of the deceit which is in their own hearts. They speak as those in the world speak. Do not listen to them or follow them, for their followers follow them to their own destruction. John 15, 8 to 23, Jesus says it like this, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own, and as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obey my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. You know, one of the reasons the world hates Jesus is because what he says points out the evil in the human heart. And sometimes that's a painful reality to look at. Who wants to hear, yeah, I'm a sinner. Yeah, the things that I have done, my motives and the things that drive me have been evil. And I'm not going to get away with it before God. He sees to the core of my being. And if I don't deal with that and reckon with that and get right with God, there is no hope and no future for me. You know, sometimes to get to the good news of the gospel, you've got to get to the bad news of who we really are, what our hearts are like. Jeremiah said, the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful of all else. Who can understand it? Can you understand your own heart? Do you know what drives you to do the things that you do that you know are against the will of God? And people hearing those things 
From Jesus' own mouth, some of them hated him because he said it. And it is the same today. People are looking for an excuse why not to follow him and why not to trust him. Because their deeds are evil and when they're in his presence, even hearing his word, it makes them uncomfortable. They don't want to have it pointed out to them that what they're doing is dark and they're doomed. They'd rather believe that at the end of this world you just get snuffed out and there's nothing left than to understand that one day they're going to have to face the living God and account for what's in their heart and what they have done in response to Jesus. Hallelujah. He didn't come into the world just to point it out so he could say, see, see what you deserve and I'm about to ride in here on a horse and trample all of you. That's not why. He points out the truth so that we can embrace a new truth. Yeah, that's who I am apart from you. My heart is desperately wicked and I can't understand it unless you help me, Jesus. And I can't save myself. This is my heart. I need you to save me. And that's when he says, yep, come on in. Come on in. I did not come to judge the world. I came to save it. I did not come here to judge you, meaning, no, I didn't come here to give you the eternal sentence and judgment of your doom. I may have come to tell you the truth about yourself. Yes, I did. But I came to take that judgment on myself, that eternal doom, that death. See, Jesus loves us. It's not just that Jesus was pure and never sinned. He is in himself through his Father the source of purity and righteousness, of sinlessness. That's why he could touch an unclean person and make them clean. There was nobody else who could do that. No priest, no prophet, nobody in all of Israel's history had that kind of power because they weren't natively the source of purity. That's why he could say to a man or woman deeply trapped in sin, you are forgiven. I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Only God can forgive. Yes, the religious were right when they said that about what he said. And Jesus is God. And as God, he's the source of purity. You feel yourself unclean because of your sins, then good. Maybe you've come to a realization of what your heart is really like. Jesus can make you pure. Amen. Amen. That's right. He can do what you cannot do for yourself. You know, you heard that the angels cry, holy, 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 when they are in the presence of God. One of those holies is for the Lamb of God, who sits on the throne with his Father. Jesus is holy and righteous and pure. And only a spotless and pure Lamb could be the Passover sacrifice. It's one of the rules of the Passover Lamb. Now let's think about why he did it again. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for you so you could become his friend. He became sin on the cross for you so you could become the righteousness of God. He took your place in agony so you could escape the agony of sin and hell. He conquered the grave 
so you could know and walk with God and overcome, so that you could live in God's joy, so that you would never have to die. You know, he didn't have to come down and even face death. As eternal and almighty God within his Father, he could have just said, you know, it's great to be up here, all-powerful, Lord of the universe, but he set aside that glory and power and took on a humble form of a human being in order to die. And then death could not hold him. He conquered it. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself. Next week's Easter, we'll get there. But Easter's already taken place. We're just remembering it. Now, hear what he asks of you in response. Have you trusted him? Have you let him in? You know, as a young man, I didn't really think I was that bad of a sinner. I remember a good friend of mine saying to me, you know, I don't know how you have, um, I know my own heart, and I, I'm a, I just have a hard time thinking of myself as good. And I was pretty detached from the secrets of my own heart, and uh, I didn't quite understand what he said. But later, as the reaping from my heart and the darkness in my heart began to happen, and the reaping was bad, and it was an agony I never thought I would face. And then I started to think of my need for the Savior. And then one day I asked him when I heard about this whole message of Jeremiah, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? It's deceitful above all else. I said, Jesus, I give you permission to come into the depths of my heart and understand me and transform me and set me free from what's in here. And boy, did I have a load of stuff I'd stored up that I wasn't even aware of that I had hidden away the way the world hides away the stuff that's dark and painful. And as he began to root out and through that, I began to get free and become a newer and newer and newer person. I'd never be standing up here before you as your pastor if God hadn't done this work. And it's a painful work, but it's the work of glory and holiness. And it's the work that Jesus desires of every one of us, and he is able and willing to do. To take the heart that, like Isaiah said, is desperately wicked, now, that was Jeremiah. Isaiah said it somehow, however, like filthy rags. And cleanse it. Take that filthiness on himself on the cross so we could be clothed with the righteousness of Christ and made new and be given hearts of flesh in place of the hearts of stone, the hearts of stone that come from the hardening of sin and rebellion and wickedness that we store up in us, and then our hearts start, stop being able to love more and more and more and more until like we're, we're like frozen statues. And that's what so many people in the world are like. They're like frozen statues. But Jesus can breathe on those statues and make them flesh again, and he can breathe on those hard hearts and give a heart of flesh in its place. That's what he does. So how will you respond? Will you let him in? Will you give him permission to do that work of holiness, to transform you out of sin into his holiness? Will you say, Lord, I don't understand my own heart. I don't know what drives me to do what I do, but I'd like to. Please come in and show me. And with you by my side, I believe that I'll have courage to look at it because you've overcome. And in you, I believe I can overcome.
Because you know, folks, there are some things that are hidden in the depths of our heart that are so painful that without God's help, we could never look at them. They're like the place where the host of demons reside. And they're terrifying. And in some people's lives, that's just what it feels like and why God seems so far away to them. Or even non-existent, because in their hearts, they have drawn so far away and inside that they don't feel anything, including God's presence. But Jesus can heal that. Like he touched that leper and transformed him and healed the guy who had no limbs, a quadriplegic, and, and transformed him. And the guy who was blind spit and made some mud, creating flesh all over again, like he did in the opening acts of creation, and giving him new eyes to see. That's what he can do for you and me. He's the expert at it. He's the designer and he's the fulfiller of his own plan. If you put yourself in his hands, you won't be disappointed. <laughs> this could preach, right? <laughs> now, I want to hear you. I want to bring you back home with this. What he asks of you in response. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands... You will remain in my love. Just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you. Folks, brothers and sisters, are you missing joy? Live into what He's about to say. So that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Do you want to be Jesus' friend? <laughs> do what he says. And this is what he says, love each other. As Christ loved us, love each other. Lay down your lives for each other in your homes. Husbands, lay down your lives for your wives. Wives, lay down your lives for your husbands. Children, lay down your lives for your parents and for each other. And parents, lay down your lives for your children. And brothers and sisters in the church, you're the family of God. Look around. These are your relatives. These are your brothers and sisters, your kin, your mothers and fathers in the faith, your children in the faith. Love each other. And you will be Christ's friends. And you know what Jesus said about that? He said, when people see you loving each other, they'll know you belong to me. So what are you doing to show that you're Jesus' friend? I want to invite you this week to pick a concrete opportunity where you show your love for your family and relatives because you are in Christ. Then you'll know joy. 
Pick a concrete opportunity where you deny yourself and self-sacrificially serve and love your fellow disciples, your brothers and sisters in the faith. Make these things regular habits. Then you'll know joy. Listen, the world is wasting away and it sends opposing Christ, whether out of ignorance or on purpose, but he has chosen you out of the world to bear fruit that'll last. Go and live as one of his friends. By this, all people will know that you belong to Jesus because we love each other. So let's get busy with it. Amen? All right, let's pray. Let's pray. Glory to God. Thank you, Jesus. We just want to thank you, Lord, that you set the way, you opened the way, you set the example, and more than just an example, Lord, you took the weight of our junk and evil on yourself so we could live in purity and righteousness, filled with love, filled with your holiness, shining it abroad, and you and us, our hope of glory, bringing hope to the world. And we just look forward to your instructions in particulars so we can indeed trust you and get busy with it. Amen. Thank you for listening to Igniting Your Faith. Let God's Word empower your life with new growth that encourages everyone you meet. Igniting Your Faith is copyrighted and published by Dr. Chris Fisher and First Church, Schuylkill Haven, Pennsylvania. Special piano music played by Cindy McClelland. You can find more information about Dr. Chris Fisher, this podcast, and the church at our website, havenfirstumc.org. We hope you will join us again next week and let God ignite your faith.